Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Caroline Corbett, who is president of the South African Society of Anesthesiologists, or as we call it, SASA. Caroline is an incredible tour de force. Before we recorded this podcast, we had a great chat about leadership, and you might catch us bringing up a few of those snippets in this conversation. However, what we're discussing in this episode is a very clever invention that she has developed called the Smart Blade, which is a video laryngoscope with some very nifty features. We have to remember that across the world, there are anaesthetics being given by health workers with little or sometimes no training, especially in airway management. And here in Australia, although we are highly trained, we have a huge country to cover and we may find ourselves working in a remote environment where a second set of eyes might be useful. This is where something like the Smart Blade might come in handy. All right, enough about it from me. Let's get into the episode. Thank you. Thanks for meeting up with me tonight. It's always good to chat with someone from another country. And congratulations on becoming president of SARS. Thank you so much, Susie. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. And I really do thank you for the invitation. And I would love to talk about leadership with you. But what I'm really curious about is the Smart Blade. So do you want to just tell me what it is? So SmartBlade is a disposable, in its current state, video laryngoscope that pairs with a smartphone or a tablet and provides a couple of additional factors and functionalities that we haven't yet seen in specifically disposable video laryngoscopy. And it's aimed at, at simplifying the procedure and specifically at enabling a single user with with limited resources, both financially and from a human resource perspective, and in certain instances, skill, to perform an intubation safely and then have the additional capability of software built into that that opens up a realm of, of possibility from telemedicine right the way through to storage of patient records. So it's hardware and software married together and trying to stay as cost-effective as possible. That's so impressive. So just to break down the hardware, because I've seen it, but just to describe it for people, it looks like your standard video laryngoscope blade, but then it looks like you can just plug in any mobile phone and you use your own mobile phone as the video part of the video laryngoscope. Is that right? Yeah. So we've replaced the expensive portion, which is always your screen with whatever the user happened to have. It's currently got a plug-in portion, but that will be in the next iteration replaced with a wireless connection. And it's a hyper-angulated channel blade that then also incorporates a suction channel, which has a universal connected to suction or oxygenation. And that enables the user to either provide direct oxygenation into the hyperpharynx or actually suction debris away, depending on what they require. And it's compatible with almost any mobile phone to provide the screen? So currently we're working on an, an Android platform, but the app is complete for iOS as well. The plugging capability, as you're aware, with cell phones changes regularly, which is why long-term it's definitely going to be a wireless connection. It's such a great idea. How did you come up with it? 
Sure. So coming from what is a very hybridized healthcare system in South Africa, my husband, who is the co-founder and our CEO of the company, so he's a paramedic that worked a lot on rotary wing, fixed wing, and in a more austere, hostile environment. And we had similar frustrations with video laryngoscopy, specifically in the pre-hospital space. It was almost never available. And then when it was available, it was completely incompatible with the environment in which they worked. It was either not robust enough or in a soiled airway, you couldn't obviously use it. And when he moved into a more corporate space, he was involved in looking at procurement of these devices. And even if they found a good one, it was too expensive. So we needed a device that could address the concerns from a, a cost perspective, that could address the concerns from a functionality perspective, and ideally could be interchangeable with additional functionality. Because I find that just intubating a patient and moving away really short changes the capacity outside of just the, the monkey skill of putting the pipe in. And globally, from a human resource perspective, we know that we're short of anesthesiologists, we're very short of advanced life care practitioners who can intubate. So if we can start networking those practitioners, we can globally expand the resource. So hardware and software marriages can really start looking at that. And we were frustrated because none of the current hardware solutions enabled that broader view of the technique and of the skill. So we were always inventing things, the two of us. And this was something we were so passionate about. So we came up with a design. And fortunately, my husband connected with a biomedical engineer from a previous project. And before we knew it, we had a prototype and we 3D printed it and it worked like a charm. So we were then fortunate enough to be paired with some seed funding and we were able to, to move into more development phase and looking at, at how to really industrialize it. So that, that was our journey. The software sounds really amazing as well. So it allows people to save the images and then be able to share them across on the software platform. The software will immediately record the intubation. You can image capture or you can video record, but it's encrypted onto the device. So you actually can't just share that image without loading it onto a platform because there's a major violation, obviously, of privacy if we just enable sharing of photos and videos. What you can do, though, is once you have consent, and, and that's a separate issue altogether, the telemedicine function enables you to actually call somebody via the app. And you can stream that intubation or ask for assistance depending on what you needed. So if you knew you were intubating a really difficult airway, you could notify people this time and they can actually stream into that. Alternatively, if you are in a very resource poor setting, you are a clinical nurse practitioner with limited skill, but you know you have to perform an intubation, you could call somebody and actually they can see what you see, talk you through, pull back, push forward, less air, more air, that sort of thing. And then obviously the last thing is to actually confirm placement. You'd be able to do that. And then those images could be stored on the platform. Are you having much interest in it in South Africa? So we've had interest globally, but we're pre-sale now. We're in the final stages of sorting out our commercialization, and then we will launch. We were really hampered by COVID with manufacture. Unfortunately, it would have been a perfect time because the need was so great. We received orders from all over the globe, actually, just via interest on the website. And our local market is obviously very prime for it. But the idea is, is that it's 
it's homegrown, but the capacity for use is both in high to middle income as well as low to middle income countries. I'm, I'm glad it's got a lot of interest globally. How long has the process been from here's an idea to then getting a prototype and now all of this commercial aspect? We registered the company in 2016 and probably really got going around 2017 and then we were significantly hampered by funding. We self-funded until we really couldn't afford it anymore. Got seed funding, got some prize funding through the World Federation of Society Anesthesiologists and some other prize funding through the African Women's Innovation Entrepreneurship Forum. And that kind of kept us going, but venture capital funding was what we really needed and being high-risk early stage South African medical tech. We, we, we were like early stage COVID patients that nobody wanted to touch, basically. So it took a while for us to actually get proper funding to get going. I think that in a more supportive system where funding and support for medical innovation, specifically clinician-led or clinician-driven innovation, these things should really not be taking more than a year or two including your clinical trials. We are now sitting at almost five years. So it's a long process. I definitely think it was more difficult because we're not strictly business people. This is our first rodeo. And we've been learning by very hard school lessons along the way, making lots of mistakes, lots of self-reflection. And whether or not it gets successfully to market, I wouldn't change it for anything. I would certainly not end the journey there. We've got another four projects that we're looking at, all with a similar patient-centric design and frugal base where we're really just looking to try to keep costs down, solve an existing need and network people. We're great believers that there is enough IP in the world. There are enough resources. We just need to try and connect them in a practical way. I think that one of the most important things I've learned through the process, and this is why I'm a great proponent for clinicians to innovate, is you learn so much stepping out of your silo. So just my having to learn how to pitch to investors who are not medical or how to go and learn about stratifying a budget for a grant, all of these things, and, and then a different manufacturing factory-based things, I would never have learned that otherwise. And even if nothing actually tangible comes out to sell, I believe that just looking at the need makes you more aware of how to practice. And remember that your patient is on the receiving end of all of that. And, and that's what matters. That's why we started. To answer your question again, it's taken too long, <laughs> but we are still going and we won't stop until we at least have a conclusive end to it, whether it's a good one or a bad one. And we will absolutely be back launching something else soon as well. I can't wait to see what else you've got in the pipeline. And I don't know about too long, at least you're doing this. It sounds like learning so much has been one of the highlights. What have been some of the challenges that you've faced along the way? I think realizing that challenges in healthcare are not solved by health-related solutions, if that makes sense. So they need finance and they need infrastructural support and they need things that unfortunately we can't necessarily provide, but I do believe we can advocate for them. So although it's an obstacle and it's a challenge, and it was really hard to accept that, is that 
realizing it didn't matter how great we thought the idea was, how fabulous it would be in helping people and actually saving lives, if it doesn't translate into immediate return on investment, that an investor can actually see, you cannot get that to work. And that for me was really frustrating, financially frustrating, because we believed so strongly in it. As I said, we self-funded for quite a long time. And doing it as a couple has a lot of strengths and a lot of challenges in itself because that baby is living at home with us. And it was a very troublesome, naughty baby. (laughs) Our children are sick of it. And I think they can intubate most mannequins now, even though they're not yet 12, because that's all they've been seeing. So it's been a family endeavor. And so the the challenges haven't just been mine, they've been mine and my husband's and my children's. The other frustration has been trust, trusting people, because we come into a medical relationship where you develop trust, you trust the system, you trust your staff, and the patient trusts you. And in corporate, it's a completely different animal. The financial bottom line and perverse incentives filter in all the time. And and it's not a game that we're trained to play. So you come in on a losing foot and how to read a room when your gender is so vastly different from that of the rest of the room where you really are just wanting to save a person and build something that will help your colleagues and you and other people. I have really had to learn the hard way how to negotiate and how to overcome the fact that they're not necessarily ever going to be on the same page with the same agenda, but perhaps you can try and find common ground. And we we are definitely not trained in that in medicine. And then getting orders, getting orders we can't service yet, knowing we could help, especially when it comes to places that are grossly under-resourced. So not just high-income countries, but those places where they don't even have a, a skilled provider, let alone the equipment. Yeah, I can see the frustration there. And my goodness, that Saza is so lucky to have you with all your negotiation skills and business insights. You're going to be one formidable leader. Is there a roadmap? How did you work out what your next steps were going to be to go from prototype product to here is something I'm going to be able to distribute globally? So there definitely are steps and I think they depend on your environment. For us, we joined a technology hardware incubator. They helped us with that roadmap. And what they did was they provided that business support that we needed, even though they themselves had issues trying to get people to understand medical technology, because that's such a unique niche. And a lot of uh, people don't really know what to do with that, because it's rare for you to be innovating medical tech outside of an existing company. From prototype, regulation has to fit in as well as licensing. And so there are a lot of parallel systems that have to exist. And you have to make that roadmap individually, depending on what you've innovated, whether it was a systems innovation, whether it was software or hardware. We did make it difficult for ourselves because we sat in all three of those. It's challenging existing systems as well as bringing software and hardware into a space that they didn't necessarily coexist. The technology incubator helped a lot. You can look at an accelerator, but they more help in in a slightly different way and and, and it affects what your revenue would be or what your shares would be. You need to look at legal advice early on and you need to look at IP protection very early on. 
Over here, if you innovate and you're a university employee, the university in most cases automatically owns your IP. And that is a problem, especially in South Africa, because we don't really have systems geared to commercializing out of universities. And venture capitalists will not invest in university-based ideas because it is so difficult to extract that IP so that they can commercialize on it. The rights that have to be paid back to university are usually about 70 to 80% of any revenue. That's why I say I think that the roadmap is there. It's not followed because the hurdles are often just too big and people will give up. Or they come up with a great idea and they land up falling into a bit of a valley of death because they get bad advice. So what we have done is, and, and I'm involved in driving this now also through through Sasa, we've got some really amazing people that are keen on innovation. In Bloemfontein, one of our smallest cities, they've recently hosted the first innovation symposium. And the ideas, and, and I, I really do believe that my feedback to the system, whether we're successful or not, is to grow what's there. And there's amazing innovation sitting here. But as you said, people don't know what to do with it. And then I think we can generate the interest that's necessary because funding is our biggest issue here. The roadmap also should be something that we give to people so that they know where to go. But I'm very excited for the year or two to come and after that because we're starting to put together some great teams that will hopefully help with that. And I think it speaks to what we were talking about earlier before about leadership, but you're already thinking about how to support the next generation with their ideas and getting their innovations off the ground. So that is fantastic. I wanted to ask, it looks like what some people have done is they've partnered with a bigger company. Was that ever a consideration for you? Yeah. So we've had three approaches, two reasonably formal ones. The concern is that, and and this has been discussed, and and down the road, most companies do ultimately sell out or need a distributor that will ultimately assist with production and not just be a distribution network. And because of costing and international manufacturing constraints, as well as the, the cost of maintaining your regulatory protection and your IP protection, they do end up with bigger companies. Our concern early on is the one company had a competing product with much lesser functionality than what we had and with no software, but they were still trying to launch the competing product. So it was pretty clear what would happen is is Mm. would be shelved. And they had intimated as much that they would segment the market, which we felt was going to completely underachieve in our objectives, which was to provide access to those markets universally. So we declined that. The other two, we've got significant concerns about manufacturing costs. And we're very precious about that. We understand that everybody needs their pound of flesh and needs to make money off a product in order for it to be a viable offering. But it completely defeats the object. We can't provide it to people that need it most, and those are the people that can pay for it the least. So we've got a number of business models that we would work towards to try to make it feasible to still commercialize it through a larger company. But thus far, we need somebody that's got a bit of a bigger vision as to how to embrace that. And and I'm not saying all large companies would do that. So you're very vulnerable as an early, early stage company because you're quite inexpensive to purchase. 
So I'm not saying don't do that. I, I think it would have saved us a lot of the blood, sweat and tears. It would have been a lot less personally expensive in time, money and, and emotional energy. But we've tried to push it out as far as possible to cement the vision and rather get people to buy into the social investment than just the commercial investment. And I, I still am I'm possibilistic enough to think that we will find the right person. And if not, that hopefully we have the opportunity to keep pushing forward alone. We'll see how it goes. You see things like Lifebox. There's people who clearly want to support their colleagues who are practicing in lower resource environments with robust equipment that will improve safety. So I'm hoping this means both commercial success for you, but also successful for this product in getting out there. Thank you. You know, my husband always says, we just want a chance to fail in the market and then be able to hopefully see that the needs have been met and we've challenged the market enough to up the game of competitors. Hopefully it'll show its benefit in just enabling people to not be alone. I think that's also one of the most terrifying things is that firstly, knowing you can help somebody and not having the resources to do it. And secondly, Suffering alone or having an adverse event completely alone, it, it, the outcome is terrible for the practitioner and obviously the patient. So the system fails. Absolutely. And it's terrible and a huge system failure as well. Do you have any thoughts about your entrepreneurial path and being a woman? I think that I've been extremely blessed in a number of ways. So Being a woman has definitely been harder in certain instances, and I don't think I have to tell any woman that there are obstacles that are unavoidable, and there are obstacles that the system hopefully will join you in overcoming and in embracing. And there are certain obstacles I've had to climb over myself and not fight so much as just get it done, but I've not done it alone, and I think that perhaps that's my biggest advantage. I, I had an extremely supportive husband who was also my business partner, and that makes a big difference because we have both been on the receiving end of gender-based prejudice, and there have been certain grants we've applied for, which I know we, we were awarded because 50% of the partnership was female, and there have also been grants we've applied for where because the 100% active partner was a male, we weren't awarded. So yes, being a woman as an entrepreneur, especially in a STEM innovation, a lot of people don't take me seriously at all. And they still don't because I'm a female and it is quite a male dominated environment, specifically in the manufacturing space and also in the more technical innovation space. So there is definitely space being made and other women and men making seats at the table to encourage it. And I encourage it from all children, you know, my kids' schools, growing up, anybody who wants to listen, I'm happy to share the story. But I think as a woman, we have to accept the fact that we have more than one role. Nothing can change the fact that you still need to go home and be a mum and a wife, and you still need to go to work. And that's a choice I've made. And and I don't expect anybody to make it easier for me. What I do expect is for us to be aware that there are other challenges. So I think that being a woman in this space currently is harder than it has to be. I have been very privileged in a number of instances, as I said, because I've had support. But there are also a lot of obstacles that I've had to climb over 
I'm going back and I'm going to go and find why they're still there. It's ridiculous that they are. But we have a responsibility to make sure that those obstacles are addressed so that nobody has to keep doing hurdles and high jumps. Because I don't think that business or innovation should be male or woman dominated. I think it should be diverse ideas dominated. There's the manufacturing, there's the tech innovation, there's business development. Do you find yourself naturally going into one of those areas or have you deliberately tried to stay across all of those areas? How do you approach all of those aspects that are going on simultaneously? Because there were just two of us to start, we had to be everything. And although my husband has more of a business background than I do, I didn't feel comfortable, as you said earlier, to sit in a meeting and not know or not be able to answer. And I found in meetings, they would prefer to talk to one of us for whatever reason. It was very rare that they would speak to both of us. And I needed to know I could answer all the questions. So uh, definitely for the first couple of years, we had to do everything. And I tried to learn concepts of everything. Also, when we were troubleshooting or we'd failed, I was able to properly learn from the experience. I I really don't believe in in our learnings that success is a target. I've always believed it's it's a cyclical thing. So you're inspired, you're motivated, and you must learn to fail. Then you must learn to self-reflect. And then success interposes along the way, but it's not a target. And so although I'm not a great fan of the manufacturing side of things, I did find it fascinating because... I grew up with a father who was an engineer and I was inventing since I was always making things and he he would help me to build whatever thing I'd come up with. I do find that very interesting. But to be totally honest, the, the sexy stuff is always in the, the R&D, not so much in the actual hardware of the engineering and the, the process development. I, I love that. And I particularly like being able to talk to people and, and getting them excited about it. Because when you see somebody actually connect with the solution on a human level as to how it's going to impact and seeing the impact translate into action, that for me is like a, it's like a rainbow. They really just seem to glow. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does very much so. I just want to thank you, congratulate you once again for becoming president of SASA and also congratulate you on just having such a great idea and the commitment and the passion to see it through. And I just wish you all the best luck with it for you personally and your family who've invested so much time into it but also all the anaesthetists and future anaesthetists and people who just find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time in an operating theatre to be able to help them out. I think it's fantastic. So thanks once again, Caroline. Susie, thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. I've so enjoyed chatting to you. I hope we can do it again soon. Well, I hope you found Caroline as impressive as I do. And I really hope that we'll be able to do a podcast in the future where we talk about leadership because she has some great ideas. I also hope you enjoyed learning about the Smart Blade. Of course, I'll put a link to the Smart Blade website in the show notes. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Caroline due to both of our involvement with the Common Issues Group. Common Issues Group consists of our two anaesthesia societies, so SASA and the ASA, as well as the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the Association of Anaesthetists, which is based in the UK, and the Anesthesia Societies of Canada and New Zealand. 
I mention this because we at the Australian Society of Anesthetists offer three scholarships a year to assist trainees in travelling to attend a scientific meeting that's hosted by one of the other common interest group members. So that means an opportunity to travel to the US, to the UK or to Canada. Now this scholarship is a great opportunity to represent the ASA overseas and meet people like Caroline. Even during the pandemic, we've been awarding this scholarship, which for obvious reasons, people have been unable to travel to. But now with travel opening up, I really wanted to remind people of this opportunity. You do need to be a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists to apply. And because it is a fair bit of money, you do need to have been a member for more than one year to be eligible for the scholarship. It is awarded on a competitive basis, so do be prepared to express why it would be beneficial for your career to go to one of these meetings and represent the ASA. So I hope if you're able to, you do take advantage of this opportunity, and I also hope to see you at one of the conferences at some stage. And until then, I hope you're staying safe and well out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>